Welcome to IMD Podcast. I'm your host, Subha Omatevan. My guest today is Howard Yu, Professor of Management and Innovation, as well as the Director of IMD's Signature Program, Advanced Management Program. We'll be talking about his award-winning book, Leap, How to Thrive in a World Where Everything Can Be Copied. Welcome, Howard. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Same here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. And we're very, very honored to have you on your birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. What an exciting day. It is a very exciting day. And we are particularly very excited to have you on this podcast. Leap, how to thrive in a world where everything can be copied. Very intriguing title indeed. How was the idea born to write this book? Yeah, the idea really came about in my teaching and research activities. Because one thing that I notice whenever I speak to senior leader across Western companies, they're all finding these latecomer who copy their product features, giving them a lot of headache. And if I look across different industries, whether it's personal computer, telecom equipment, all the way to wind turbine or automotive, a lot of the time is this latecomer, this low-cost copycat that surpassed the early pioneers, the Western companies in their domain. So think about personal computer, for instance, right? Historically, it's really HP, Compaq, and IBM dominate those sectors. They pioneer such a sector. But today, the largest player are Lenovo from China or Samsung from South Korea. Absolutely, yeah. I love the terminology latecomers. Latecomers and, yeah, low-cost copycats. Mm -hmm. And when you were teaching, and was that even early stage in, in your research where you came up with the idea for Leap? Yeah, my, I mean, the personal feel to it is I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and I see how industry cluster getting destroyed, job moves across border, capital moving out, long before American would even have a concern about hollowing out their really? manufacturing capability, right? Right. So I remember I was, when I was young, in high school, we talked about how Hong Kong built its industry cluster on manufacturing, mostly on textile and toys and light goods, for instance. At one point, Hong Kong is the world's largest exporter of toys. And hard then, to believe today. Hard to believe today. We surpassed Japan as wow. the largest exporter for toys around the world. But then I remember in my high school and certainly in college time, all this industry cluster in Hong Kong basically implode. After the financial crisis, people lose their job, and the sort of optimism that characterized Hong Kong people have forever lost. And of course, Hong Kong survived. We turned ourselves into a financial hub, and we're doing all right chucking along. But the sort of the pearl of the East forever gone. And that's decades before any economist from the West would worry about global supply chain, about shipping your manufacturing across to low-cost region. So I myself really lived through that period. And one thing that plagued me all the time is could we think of an industrial policy or even company strategy so that we don't just prosper in a year or two but thrive over the long run in the age when everything can be copied. Absolutely. This is very fascinating how you combined what you saw in your childhood and in your upbringing in Hong Kong and basically used it to, 
to create your own career, basically. That was your own personal strategy. Was it then the idea was born in Hong Kong with you and also kind of what, what your upbringing really shaped it? But your thoughts and beliefs that you had on reinvention, was that the heart of it? Yeah. Before I came to Switzerland, I have the puzzle, but I mm-hmm. don't have the solution. Right. And it was interesting after I moved to Switzerland and joined IMD almost eight years ago. And then I noticed, yes, despite all of this industry cluster getting displaced by latecomer, whether it's personal computer to mobile phone. But here in Switzerland, interestingly enough, there's a place where you have this century-old company settled down in one certain location. They continue to thrive more than two centuries. <laughs> and this is, we're referring to the city of Basel. Yeah. Along River Rhine, you have companies such as Novartis and Roche. Mm-hmm. And Novartis' predecessors, Siba, Geigy, and Sandoz, has settled down River Rhine for more than 200 years. <laughs> Today, Basel is not Rust Belt region like Detroit. <laughs> Basel is one of the highest, uh, you know, standard of living is one of the highest in Western Europe. And Novartis and Roche continue to lead the global industry as global leader. Certainly a sharp contrast compared to General Motors, Ford and Chrysler in Detroit. They long been disrupted by the Japanese, Toyota, mm-hmm. and then replaced by South Korean, Hyundai. And today, of course, you have Chinese companies such as Geely, Sherry and BYD, all cast a long shadow to these global pioneers. And yet in Basel, it feels so different. So I begin to see, wait a second, there is in fact hope. Maybe we can find out certain solution out of a study of the industry cluster out there in Basel. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the success of the pharmaceutical industry in Switzerland that they are still thriving for, for some reason? Yeah, so in uh, conventional wisdom, we suggest, oh, is patent. Because if the drugs is on patent, you have global protection. And of course, when Lipitor, which is a patent drug by Pfizer, gone off patent, their global revenue dropped by 85%, people buy generics. But it's not so much about patent per se I'm interested, because what I found interesting is there are many diseases have yet got treatable medication. So it's not like all the diseases have cure already. Right. In fact, majority of the disease, we still have no cure. And yet the, the key question is, how come there is no latecomer? Mm-hmm. What is the Japanese or any Asian company or the Chinese can develop a pharmaceutical company that can discover new drugs for untreatable at this moment and become a big behemoth? We simply have not seen it yet. Mm-hmm. At the same time, these countries are quite capable of building cars, mobile phone and personal computer. So it's not so much about just copying the existing drugs. I'm not even talking about that. But how come it's so difficult to learning how to discover new drugs? (laughs) That's the real puzzle. (laughs) Absolutely. And also, um, you know, kind of going back to the concept of your book, in in this concept um, of LEAP, in what sense do you use it in your book? Can you elaborate on this? Sure. So I decided to spend a few weeks up in Basel talking to chemists, scientists, and historians just to understand, is there any major shift of the industry history 
that are so different than auto or PC or wind turbine that suggests a very different industry dynamic beyond just patent, IP and expenditure in R&D. Turns out Seberg, Aggie and Sandoz and Roche, they settled down in River Rhine more than 200 years ago. Historically, a lot of these pharmaceutical firms back in the 19th century, 1890s, they were chemical dye manufacturer. They make chemical dye for the textile industry. Now, for whatever reason it is, these chemists discover some medicinal benefit out of these compound. Maybe they accidentally tasted it, I don't know. <laughs> but if you think for a moment, the first world blockbuster is a fever-reducing drug. It's called antipyrin. It's pioneered by Hoyce, a German company. And in Switzerland back then, there's no patent law. In fact, the local chemists were encouraged to imitate foreign invention. The French hated it. They call Switzerland right. the land of the counterfeit. But then they were selling all these antipyrin, these fever-reducing drugs, to the U.S. Now, if you think for a moment, the hotbed for innovation back then, before the turn of the century, is all about organic chemistry. You are a chemist to discover new drugs. Now, we all remember back in high school, we learned about Alexander Fleming, the story of the discovery of penicillin, the first antibiotics. It's in fact a study of fungus who secrete mojus to suppress bacteria growth. What we saw is after the Second World War, all these pharmaceutical companies, they move into the study of microbiology. The hotbed for innovation is in fact the study of microbes. So researchers would send in staff to go down to mineshaft to collect soil sample. Pfizer in the United States, they would even advise employees to look behind the back of the refrigerator to find really? an interesting mode to bring back to the laboratory <laughs> yeah. for testing and analysis. Talking about innovation. <laughs> exactly. So the whole field jettisoned away from the old knowledge discipline of organic chemistry to the study of microbiology. They sat in labs and collaborated with universities. Now today, if you ask what is hot in the field of pharmaceutical firms, of course, it's the study of human DNA, genetics, uh, informatics, etc. So starting from the 70s, since the bio-revolution, the entire field of drug discovery moved decidedly into genomics. So the broad history of pharmaceutical looks like this. It leaped from one knowledge discipline to the next, and then to the next. And if you compare and contrast, say, a car, automotive, until most recently, it has always been about mechanical engineering, the internal combustion engine. So competition is in fact almost like climbing up the mountain. If the underlying knowledge stagnate in most of the industry they are, sooner or later, the latecomer would reach the similar height mm -hmm. as the early pioneers. But if you think about in the pharmaceutical industry, that constantly leap from one discipline to the next and then to the next, then it's almost like climbing up a mountain where there's constant mudslides. In those scenarios, when everyone is being pushed down, mm -hmm. then it turns out it's the most experienced one. The pioneers, in fact, stand a better chance to If they leap. don't make a strategic choice to leap. Correct. Because in the 40s, if you want to understand microbiology, you need to be a great chemist to start right. with. In the 70s and 80s, if you want to understand human DNA, you need to understand microbiology to start with. What you know, in fact, inform how you thinking about new product development and commercialization along the way. 
So much so, as long as the organization really decided to leap. I find it very fascinating how you draw all your research results currently and what ultimately became your book through history. How was that kind of an accident, or you were looking for that history where it started? Yeah, I'm always intrigued by um, corporate history because I think in order to understand the future, we need to understand where we are from, and, and that is somehow like all this pattern of change really rhyme across. Even when we're thinking about digitization these days, or AI, or anything, or autonomous driving, in fact, if you use the lens of a leap. Then it becomes very clear what is going on. For instance, automakers historically is all about mechanical engineering.、Mm. Why self-driving car is so scary? Because it represents a complete leap to a new knowledge frontier, based on self-driving car capability on software and algorithm. Electric vehicle again, moving away from the mechanical engineering based on internal combustion engine to electric motors and battery、uh, chemistry. Or even ride-sharing scheme is based on AI and algorithm to link supply and demand, which is why the auto sector right now is in such a flux because it opens up for forward-looking company to leap, or if not doing so, then one would render irrelevant、mm, over time. Yeah. So there is a necessity. What you're mentioning here is the best companies leap repeatedly. They have to keep doing it. How do they do that? <laughs> yeah, so it does cut across the organization. Obviously, these days people talk about design thinking, lean startup, staying agile across rank and files. I think this is necessary condition, but not sufficient. In the end, there are certain managerial behavior that the senior management team have to embrace for a company to successfully leap. Let me give you a very concrete example. When Novartis begins to launch its very first drugs for a rare form of blood cancer, leukemia, rare form of leukemia,、um, it basically is the first time they launch drugs based on the understanding of human genomics. Now, to solve or cure a rare form of cancer, the market size would always be limited. So, inside Novartis, there is almost this debate among senior executive: Should we even try to conduct a clinical trial? When the market potential is so small, but back then the former CEO of Novartis, Daniel Venzeller, basically said, "If coming up with this targeted drug that cures CML, this rare form of leukemia, is not just about incremental revenue for the firm, but it will fundamentally change the way we discover drugs in years to come." Quote, he said, "Money does not matter. Full steam ahead." And so it's this idea, sometimes at the cusp of leap, that of course you need market evidence. You know this drug is going to work, but to push the organization to ch- fundamentally change the core of their business and the core of the operation, it does require certain top-down initiative. Absolutely. That there are things that a CEO cannot delegate.、Mm-hmm. And in terms of a strategic choice, a strong strategic choice and decision they have to make. That's what you called the difference between the old and the new business, correct? Because、um, the old business, so we have to run. That's where kind of the cash cow, what do you call?、Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the money comes in. But how do you, as a and as a manager, and from the top management, make the decision? And this certain 
pot of money we in the budget we reallocate for the new innovation. I think Novartis is a great example, like the, the amount of money they spend on research and in development. Yeah, obviously, um, in the world of pharmaceutical company, they are spending fierce sum of R&D expenditure, $10 billion per year, just to keep up the uh, product pipeline. But the idea of LEAP doesn't just only apply to mm-hmm. scientific intense organization. In my research as mundane as a company making laundry detergent disposable diapers <laughs> like Procter & Gamble, <laughs> right. they're still the worldwide leader. Yeah. And that is kind of weird because if IT companies such as Nokia and Ericsson in the telecom equipment get displaced by Huawei, for instance, how could Procter & Gamble making something so low-tech, seemingly, and so mundane, seemingly, can thrive over the long run for hundreds, 150 years? And what I saw is, again, is this notion of leap is not just relying on your core discipline, your historic knowledge, but really incorporating the new knowledge foundation so that what you offer to consumer will look very different over time. Very concretely, PNG for the longest in its history before the 60s, all they could make is natural soap. So it's natural soap formula, it's not synthetic detergent. By the time of the 60s, they really mastered within the four walls of R&D how to artificially synthesize the world's first detergent. And that's the launch of the Thai brand. Now, in the wake of the launch of the Thai brand, they essentially quadrupled the number of organic chemists overnight. So it's a new form of knowledge discipline. However, before they launched the Thai brand, there is this compulsive fear inside PNG because all these manager and executive, they were afraid if we launch a synthetic detergent, we're gonna destroy our natural soap business, and that's the ivory bar. Right. But the chairman of the board, uh, William Coopers, who said, if there's anyone gonna destroy our natural soap business, it better be PNG ourselves. <laughs> Just like Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs once said, if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else would. Yeah. What I see interestingly is from Novartis to PNG to Apple, when companies are capable to leap to the next frontier in order to stay on top of competition, they all exhibit the same identical managerial behavior along the way. Right, it needs a lot of courage and appetite to taking a lot of risk. It takes courage to persist. Now, granted, all these guys are not making crazy big bet without information. Right. Novartis know this drug candidate is going to work. <laughs> they so it just has to bring be evidence-based. It. It's evidence-based. PNG have already staged internal demonstration. This synthetic detergent just wash way better than our natural soap. So all of these are based on calculated evidence that suggests we are actually good. What the CEO essentially is doing is to overcome internal barrier, is to all overcome organizational inertia. It's the last thing that they need to push in order for the company to launch into a new trajectory. Mm-hmm. Absent so, no matter how great is the innovation, the company will still fumble. Case in point, Kodak invented the digital camera, but they fail to commercialize. They're making all this money big bet, and they know it's gonna work, and yet they couldn't scale because of the lack of what I call the CEO deep dive. What does all of that mean for for the employee? So there are two parts of thinking about that. In the age of digitization, 
all companies, at least on the shareholders' report or letters to shareholders, they would talk about you know all these audacious initiative, moonshot ambition. If you're an automaker, everyone talk about future mobility. If you're a bank, you talk about mobile services, mobile payment, artificial intelligence, robot advisory. So, so these days the strategic intent is so transparent. You change the name among shareholders' report, you get confused who's who. <laughs> But here's the thing: as an individual uh, employees, then one could think about if the organization is serious about these type of initiative, what kind of very granular ask you would make to the senior management team to allow your idea to take off. Or conversely, if this is a company where just giving a lot of talk. But you don't see the tangible senior top-down intervention in critical juncture, and I'm not talking about micromanagement here. But it's really the last removal of organizational barrier is still absent. Then it kind of tells you what kind of risk appetite your current employer actually harbor, and it's up to us to make a choice to continue, or you pivot your own career trajectory. What has been your experience since you published your book? The reactions from CEOs and organizations alike. Yeah. So,、um, in terms of individuals, I think it generated a lot of interest in the sense that could we go into different vertical and specialize and looking at, after all, different vertical or industry does have a slightly different dynamic. So, out of all those follow-up conversation, what we did is beginning to measure across vertical. Let's say automaker within this particular market, who are the incumbent? I'm not talking about Tesla as new entrants. I'm talking about incumbent from General Motors to BMW to Toyota, that type of the world. Which are the one who are most ready for the future? So think about almost like the leap readiness index. You can also apply the same logic of ranking the relativity or relative position among incumbent of banks. Since everyone talk about blockchain and mobile payment, everyone want to be fintech disruptor.、Right. So let's take the current incumbent and forget about PayPal and Square. These are disruptor. But what about a traditional retail bank or Visa and Master's credit card company? Who are the one who actually make tangible traction from product launch to growth prospect to productivity, etc.? Who are the one just talk? Who are the one make tangible progress and extract some key lesson learned? I think different sector have a very peculiar dynamic. As a result, the key lesson learned is different. Then you can across different market and extract some key principle. Applying to this、um, your leap forward concept to different sectors, how would you suggest to apply this to, for instance, nonprofit or startup? Right. So, I think for nonprofit or startup, the challenges to conduct managerial research is the lack of publicly available data.、Mm-hmm. Now, what we did with the Leap Readiness Index, for instance, for large company existing incumbent, is we measure a couple of things, and out of these, then you can almost see how it can be applied to startup. Then, but what we see is first is. Before one can reinvent, your core business needs to be healthy. Because if the core business already eroded, you have no time with, nor resources or credibility to invent the future. So when time is on your side, do make the change. So that's number one: the core business, how healthy it is, as measured by profitability. 
Second is the growth prospect of the firm. Two things: Kega growth over the years in terms of revenue, are they rising or are they dropping? Third is investor sentiment measured by PE ratio, stock price of the company versus the earning or revenue of the firm. So that gives you a feel of how the financial market see the growth prospect of the firm. For instance, Netflix is trading at about seventy. Amazon is around fifty, Google and Facebook is around forty, and Apple is around fifteen, and GE is around seven. So there is almost a market feeling of in terms of the growth prospect of a firm. You can take off the publicly available information. Then you want to looking at the board diversity. So if the board is all homogenous, they are born in Munich, work in Munich, study in Munich, <laughs> retire in Munich. To think outside the box is pretty hard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you also want to take a look of the CEO background as well. Is this CEO almost close to retirement? Because empirically, it has been shown over the last thirty years that CEO close to retirement, he or she is not going to instigate major change. Or CEO just got into the position, he or she may lack the credibility to instigate large scale change. So it's almost like an inverted U curve. That's an optimal point. Now, last, what you want to measure, of course, is the R and D intensity, how much they spend on、uh, research and development, and then looking at their product rollout. Now, product rollout is quite easy to proxy. You look at the、uh, press release. You look where the consumer report would talk about that. Fortune magazine, Bloomberg View, Wall Street Journal. Presumably, when a company launch a new product, they would advertise. When there's a success in one market, they would roll out to second market, and then there are more press release. And if this is great product, blogger would talk about that. So very easy. You take Factiva for instance. You put autonomous driving, see the industry baseline, then put a car company tag along with autonomous driving to see whether they're following the industry trend, or they were early pioneer and fizzle, or latecomer and took off.、Mm-hmm. All of these category I just mentioned. There are twenty-one categories. Then you take them into a composite index and measure. Then out of these lessons learned, it turns out to be quite transferable to startup as well. For instance, if a startup is board is too homogenous, your supervisory board, then one may get blindsided to certain ideology. For instance,、mm-hmm. this is when Facebook keep on ignoring the changing landscape or sentiment. From regulator to the general public, for example, you could almost see also the idea of leaping to the next knowledge discipline is very important that you continue to launch new product and experiment in the marketplace. So there are a set of key lessons learned, whether you NGO or startup or medium-sized company can learn from out of the study of big industry incumbent.、Mm. There's a lot of, like you say, a lot of previous experience, and with this current、um, index, I think it becomes easier for companies to do that. But coming back to your point of、um, managerial cre- creativity and、um, the behavior that you would look into a manager to drive a change like this, as a professor, Howard at、um, IMD, what do you see in leaders that you feel、uh, you need to nurture more? Yeah. Yeah, so there are two types of participant I come across in my classroom. There are cl-、uh, there are participant who almost constantly ask for 
content and framework and immediately apply. Like tools, There's almost this need, need of we need to we need to tell them. Right. They want a formula, <laughs> and we need to spoon feed them.、Mm-hmm. There is another class of participant. You give them some kind of framework. They're eager to take it and try it and see whether it works or not, and set up the boundary condition and analyze. In short, there is there are a class of participants who want to focus on the area they had deep experience around. There is a second class of participant, different type of participant, who are intensely intellectually curious. Even when we are talking about something outside their own sector, they are just intrinsically. Excited and interested, and want to find out more. Versus, there are people who find these are information overwhelmed. All right. Don't don't overwhelm me. Too much information. Could you simplify? <laughs> This is your job to simplify my life. Now the difficulty, of course, becomes if our environment is stable. If your competitor is only your peer group, then option number A to have try test and try formula. That's great. But in the age of digitization, where industry boundaries blurring, that companies like e-commerce giant like Alibaba is entering finance and everywhere, then we've got to seek aspiration, element from other sector, repackage, repurpose, in my own field, and that requires this intense curiosity, the ability to conduct associate thinking, lateral thinking. Rather than focus on what you're good at, is increasingly more and more important. So I see these are the personal trade that,、uh, whether it's learning organization of a company or business school like IMD, or generally education must nurture.、Uh, we have to encourage people to continue to stay curious about the outside world, to develop a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. That my capability can continue to grow, that would be increasingly more and more important. Also, staying curious to be able to think outside the box, to、within. think independently. Yeah, it's no longer just what the CEO tells you, right? And you take on their command and execute. That age is over,、mm-hmm. and yet there are, I would argue, we still have really competent managers see themselves as operator. Rather than leader,、mm-hmm. and, and and inspire and, I, and kind of have that vision for the long term change. Vision for the long term change. Be able to think independently,、yeah. and and test assumption, forming hypotheses, challenge the paradigm.、Uh, this really requires different way of thinking about、yeah. uh, education, <laughs> job prospect,、right. as well as career trajectory.、Mm. That's true. And having said that, talking about、uh, staying curious, I'm curious where it's、uh, where are you going with your current research now? You've you've done that. It's it's an amazing concept, and it it makes sense in the current、uh, business environment. You we see we're seeing everywhere in、uh, on every continent we're seeing examples of leaping forward. And what does it do to businesses if they don't do it? And where is your curiosity now? The human drama. The human drama. So we can talk about corporate strategy all day long, right? But、yeah. in the end, it's like whether a company can pivot or not. It depending on the human. <laughs> that's the manager. That's the executive. There's a critical mass of employee comes together to challenge the existing paradigm. The question is, 
why? <laughs> Aren't we all too busy true. already? That um, is true. Good question. Right. It's like I have come across、uh, the chairman of one of the largest computer manufacturer out in Taiwan, and the chairman described, you know, when I was young, we learned about software programming on if then statement, right? You you program like C plus plus or Pascal. We remember our distant past. You write a lot of if-then statement. If this, then this, and else this, and you play on loop. Today's, of course, everyone talk about machine learning and deep learning, neural network. It's really a different type of programming approach. In fact, you don't write instruction anymore. And so I was talking to this chairman of these computer companies, and he described to me, yeah, but I spend all the weekend and evening these days to master the. Technical details on machine learning because this is too important. And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> you're like close to seventies. What what causes you or triggers you to embrace not just change, not just changing the company strategy and hire some data scientists on the side, but you yourself would take on that task, foregoing the time you can spend with your grandchildren, but learn about some of a new skill. Um, and I see leader have changed the outlook as well. Five six years ago, I could see the same CEO be very much the traditional command and control type. And today, they he or she would bring the whole team of the board members to visit other companies to learn from the best in class. How do they shift, for instance, the investor profile? And then he would undertake this difficult conversation with his board. Changing the board composition. So who wants to do that? And yet we see people doing that. So I really want to understand. It's not just a fixed personality disposition, although that in itself is interesting. But what causes these leaders to have a pivotal moment that they are all well compensated already, and yet they're so determined to make an impact?、Mm-hmm. I'm super fascinated. I hope I get to interview you when you've done that research because the the human aspect of things. This is like you brought it to the point. The sense of curiosity, the empathy, and the commitment they're showing without necessarily getting kind of a monetary return. Right. That's kind of what it. What is the personal satisfaction or the purpose of it? They risk the legacy. Right. A lot of these、uh, right. senior leader they risk the legacy of these things. Doesn't、mm-hmm. work out, then they would be seen very different way, and they've seen example, right?、Uh, General Electric, for instance, under Jeffrey Inmel, they all talk about digitization, they all talk about predictive analyt-、uh, analytics, and it did not pan out, and the CEO was ousted, and within the corporate world, he's no longer popular, and so we are talking about people taking on a personal risk. Doing something require a lot of effort and time and sweat and blood. <laughs> It's not that trivial. Absolutely.、Yeah. No, I'm very, very curious to see your new research on this. Having said that, thank you so much,、uh, Howard, for your time. It was a fascinating conversation on on your book, and I'm even more fascinated about where you're headed with this. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a pleasure. Bye.